the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good Monday afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. First day of spring break for some of you. End of spring break for others. Hope you had a great day either way. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Chris Gasick. He's a senior fellow with the Family Research Council. We're going to talk about the Gorsuch uh, controversy as it has become and the changes that are afoot. Um, My guess is if the Democrats uh, go for the um, filibuster, the Republicans will exercise the so-called nuclear option, and uh, this whole process will be changed moving forward. We're also going to talk with Lisa Pennington. She's the author of Tight Ropes and Teeter-Totters, Finding Balance in the Ups and Downs of Life. She's the mother of nine, so she may know something a little bit about balance. Uh, And uh, looking forward to um, uh, an interview tomorrow, I'll just mention now, with Joel Rosenberg, his uh, latest in the uh, trilogy, the the final of that series, uh, Without Warning. Just a heads up on that. Well, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted today along party lines, no surprise there, to endorse Judge Neil Gorsuch for the Supreme Court, setting up a showdown between the Democratic and Republican senators in a series of final votes expected later this week. Well, the 20-member committee voted 11 to 9 for Gorsuch, President Trump's pick to replace conservative Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in February of last year. The nominee's appointees, says Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican out of Iowa, who allowed all 20 members to speak before their final vote. Uh, They tried to find a fault with him that will stick, and it just hasn't worked, he said. He's the committee chairman. Judge Gorsuch, he went on to say, is eminently qualified. He's a mainstream judge who earned the universal respect of his colleagues on the bench and in the bar. He applied the law as... uh, uh, we in Congress wrote it, end quote. Well, despite such praise from the GOP side, all Democrats on the committee voted against the nominee and a sign of the clash to come as the nominee advances to the full Senate. Well, the chamber's Democratic leaders appear ready to try to hold up the nomination through what's known as the filibuster. Republicans have 52 senators would need the support of uh, eight Democrats uh, to reach the 60 necessary. And so far, only three Democrats have come forward to say they plan to vote in favor of him. Uh, that appears uh, out of reach, that uh, that larger number of 60. Well, prior to the committee vote, more than 40 Democrats said that they're willing to block the Gorsuch nomination, increasing the likelihood that major Republicans, or rather majority Republicans, would have to use the so-called nuclear option to push the nominee through. California Senator Dianne Feinstein, the committee's top Democrat, she returned to her party's repeated argument that Judge Merrick Garland, former President Barack Obama's nominee, Uh, should have been considered for the Scalia seat. But leaders of the Republican-controlled Senate held off until the 2016 presidential election. Feinstein also um, revisited the uh, ruling uh, Gorsuch made on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals in Colorado, in which he sided with a company that fired a trucker for disobeying orders by unhitching his vehicle from a manufacturing tractor-trailer and driving off after waiting hours for help in sub-zero temperatures. Now, what Feinstein didn't seem to appreciate is the fact that the judge doesn't have the freedom to determine whether or not it uh, was fair. All he can determine is what the law says. She went on to say, therefore, I cannot support the nominee. This is not 
uh, the usual nominee. Well, it's a bit of a stretch, but so far, just three Democrats in the Senate uh, on the Senate side have announced support for Gorsuch, a graduate of Columbia University, Harvard Law School and Oxford University, who was unanimously approved last time around. They are Senators uh, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, all representing states Trump won in November and all up for reelection next year. So the politics that runs through all of this on both sides of the aisle is pretty uh, pretty clear. Uh, they uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Sunday that Gorsuch uh, nevertheless will be confirmed by Friday. That indicates that they are willing to use the so-called nuclear option, which means 51 would approve his nomination rather than a 60. He was um, noncommittal on whether he was prepared to trigger this so-called nuclear option, a change in precedent that would allow the Senate to break the filibuster with a simple majority. But on Monday, a Republican colleague spoke bluntly and indicated the party would go that route. Uh, South Carolina GOP uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, a Judiciary Committee member, said uh, this will be the last person subject to a filibuster. Ironically, we are going to change the rules for somebody who has been a good judge over such a long time. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer predicted on Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press that Gorsuch would not pass the 60-vote benchmark and argued that Trump should try to come up with a mainstream nominee. Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, a d- Democrat on the committee, like Feinstein, argued that Gorsuch had too often sided against the little guy. Again, he doesn't make political decisions. He makes legal decisions. Uh, so it, uh, it it betrays a bit of their misunderstanding, I suppose, of that role. Uh, Utah Senator Mike Lee, a Republican on the committee, said Gorsuch likely uh, thought the firing of the trucker was foolish, but nonetheless, wasn't the, that wasn't the question before him. The law, uh, as he carefully analyzed it, would not allow judicial intervention. And that's how he ruled on the case. But uh, members of the senator counting on the general public not understanding the legal nuance and just going with the gut feeling, hey, that didn't seem fair to me. But, of course, it's Congress that writes the laws and not the judiciary. Uh, we're going to talk in just a few moments with uh, Chris Gasick. He's a senior fellow for the Family Research Council. The president of the FRC, uh, Tony Perkins, has come out uh, strongly in favor of Gorsuch and is urging others who support his uh, nomination, his appointment, if you will, uh, as well to communicate with their members, uh, both from the state of Oregon. Both Democrats have said that they plan to vote against him. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he has uh, urged uh, supporters of him, and it's not altogether clear what kind of justice he will be, given some of the statements made uh, during the uh, the hearings, for example, on uh, Roe versus Wade, which he said is settled law. Well, that may mean that he would not, under any circumstance, uh, vote to overturn Roe versus Wade since it's precedent. It may mean that... Um, It is settled law until a challenge comes that unsettles it. We don't really know. And it's never possible to know uh, what a um, Supreme Court justice will do. Um, Nonetheless, uh, that vote is expected by the end of the week. And as uh, was indicated earlier, they are willing to go the so-called nuclear route if this candidate is filibustered. This really brings to a head a very long and arduous process that's taken place over many years uh, bringing uh, the uh, the Congress or the Senate to this point. So we'll see what happens, uh, what happens next. So we'll talk with Chris Gasick in greater detail about that. Uh, again, he's a senior fellow with the Family Research Council. Uh, we'll also talk with Lisa Pennington. She's the author of Tight Ropes and Teeter Totters. We're going to talk about finding balance in the ups and downs of life, as she, a mother of nine, has uh, come to understand quite well. So that's uh, coming up in just a few moments as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Stick around. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Toyota of Vancouver. Well, as you probably know by now, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted on Monday along party lines to endorse Judge Neil Gorsuch for the Supreme Court. And that, of course, is setting up a showdown between Democratic and Republican senators in a series of final votes expected later this week. Well, the 20-member committee voted 11-9 to for Gorsuch. President Trump's pick for the high court seat left vacant by conservative uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in February of last year. Well, the uh, nominee's uh, opponents have tried very hard to find fault with him, fault that sticks, uh, although he was unanimously uh, approved uh, some 10 years ago when he was uh, before the U.S. Senate for advice and consent for his current position. Here to talk with us about what happens next and what to make of this showdown, Chris Gasick is a senior fellow at the Family Research Council. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. We're hearing a lot about what happens next. We know that um, many uh, Democrats have come forward to suggest that they will not support Judge Gorsuch, and they've come up with a number of reasons why they've decided not to do so. Uh, the uh, committee on party lines have now uh, agreed to send that to the full Senate floor. Your thoughts on what's happened uh, up to this point, including the hearings that led to this vote today? Well, I guess the, the main thing is that the... Um this sort of bipartisan thinking, you know, the Republicans who think that there's there would be any chance of bipartisanship uh, were wrong. And, and uh, you have a, a nominee who is, I mean, probably has one of the, you know, top five resumes that's ever been submitted to the Senate for confirmation and for, you know, uh, any judicial position. And uh, um, they're not even going to give him a vote. So, I mean, if the Democrats had their way. So I mean, it's just uh, it's really just trench warfare up there, and it's you know it's ideological, and it basically has to do with this uh, vision that the Democrats have of um, using the court as another way of uh, enacting their agenda. Well, in fact, it was rather interesting to me as I heard some of them raise their objections about why uh, they are refusing or declining to vote in favor of a Gorsuch appointment. Had much more to do with the outcome of cases that that. Uh, didn't uh, comport with their worldview rather than whether or not it was argued um, uh, correctly according to the law. So it was more of a political analysis than it was uh, his jurisprudence. Um, What are your thoughts about uh, Gorsuch? I know the Family Research Council um, uh, president has come out in favor of Neil Gorsuch and urging members of the U.S. Senate to uh, vote in favor of him. Your thoughts on the kind of jurist he would make, particularly given the fact that he is uh, uh, replacing conservative Justice Antonin Scalia, who was a very conservative constructionist. Well, no, I, mean, I think there's there's somewhat. Uh, you can never tell exactly how people will will line yeah, up. Yeah, that's I right. He's uh, very. Um, I think he committed to a similar kind of analytical framework for looking at uh, cases. Uh, you know, looking at the text of the Constitution and constitutional cases, and um, not inventing. Uh, or, or acting as a legislator, but trying to act as a judge and, and determine what uh, terms and meaning of, of the document meant. And I, you know, he's, he's not a, a living, breathing Constitution person. I mean, this is somebody who thinks that the Constitution, you, you know, you're trying to determine um, the original meaning of the document as best you can, and uh, that doesn't give you the right to go all around. Um, you know, inventing new powers for the federal government, or you know, I mean, it's just that 
I, I can't even really sort of figure out what the, the judicial philosophy of the left is now, other than just, you know, I, I mean, I don't understand why we even have a legislature. Why don't we just have, like, nine judges? It would be, <laughs> yeah. you know, boss less, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that some of the objection has to do with the fact that President Obama's nominee didn't get uh, an up or down vote, didn't get any hearings, and there's a lot of rancor over that, despite the fact that the vice president, when a sitting senator, suggested that this was the right approach uh, when you have a, a president who's outgoing? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are kind of two ways to approach this. I mean, I, I just look at it, I mean, personally, as um, I'm glad that, uh, I mean, let me tell you something, Gorsuch ends up sitting on this court. I mean, I'm not generally always the, you know, um, I'm not around, you know, blowing my horn for Mitch McConnell, but it's, it will all be basically due to Mitch McConnell. I mean, the day after, um, you know, or virtually within days of Scalia coming out of the nomination of, of Garland appearing, I mean, you know, Mitt, uh, McConnell said this guy's never going to have a hearing. Um, and I think, I, I don't know McConnell, but I mean, it seems to me that he's very um, worried about a lot of free speech issues especially, the, you know, the Citizens United decision and um, uh, free speech and, and campaign finance. And so he's very much at odds with uh, someone in his own party, uh, like John McCain. But um, I, I think the argument that they gave, yeah, it's true. I mean, you have an outgoing president and then all these sorts of things. But, um, I mean, maybe if you were in an era when uh, there weren't these sort of deep divides and, and I mean, the, the judges that the Obama administration is putting on are just so unbelievably radical. I mean, it, you, you're sort of witnessing this out of this uh, you know, immigration case up in the Ninth Circuit. Then you have like this just totally, you know, these kooky circuit courts. I mean, you just live in some kind of, uh, you know, there's like no hope over there. <laughs> Unless you have a Supreme Court that's going to try and impose some sort of rationality on what they're doing. I mean, they're just, you know, um, even the original Trump order was completely legitimate. I mean, it may not be what the left likes or what the policy is, but, I mean, the Congress and the president have just plenary power in these areas, and the Congress gave Trump, gave the president the ability to do those things. I'm kind of going off field here, but I'm just saying these, these judges are just so off the, off the wall um, that, you know, I think McConnell's looking at this and saying, you know, it's just you're never going to get the Constitution back. You're just never going to. I mean, this is existential threat <laughs> to the Constitution mm-hmm. of the United States. I mean, I mean, it. I don't know what more you can say. I mean, it's just um, these people, uh, they're just, you know, it's, it's not good. Well, I, I would certainly agree <laughs> agree with you there. Well, now we're just, we're hearing um, that the Republicans may uh, go for what they're referring to as the nuclear option because the uh, Democrats are planning to filibuster uh, this nomination. This would be unprecedented, we're also being told. How serious a uh, breach of protocol for the Senate would this be if, in fact, the uh, the Republicans uh, that the, uh, the the Senate president says, "Yeah, we're we're going to uh, confirm him by the end of the week." How how big a deal is this? I don't think it's a big deal at all. I mean, the the okay. So here's basically what's going on. The, the essentially the norm has always been with uh, judicial nominees, and especially with Supreme Court nominees. I mean that the that the nominee gets a majority uh, up or down vote, and that you don't um, uh, block uh, the vote with you know filibusters or, and that whole sort of set of murder moral, right? So that you don't require a, a you know a supermajority to cut off uh, debate, and that number is you have to get the 60 uh, members of the of the Senate. That's it's only been done 
for any sort of idea. It's never been done for an ideological or political reason. There's a, a case back in the late 60s when there was a uh, very big Democrat uh, friend of uh, Lyndon Johnson's, Abe Fortas, who was a Washington super warrior here in town. And uh, he was put on the court, and um, he was getting money funneled to him because he just couldn't afford under his like, the lifestyle to which he had become accustomed as a Washington super lawyer. He was getting money funneled to him through these sort of back channels. And then um, when, unbelievably, uh, he was there's an attempt made by Johnson to elevate him to the chief justice position. That was blocked. And so then he ended up resigning from the court, and uh, Nixon ended up filling both Fortas's, you know seat and then the uh, Supreme Court chief justice seat with with uh, Warren Berger from Minnesota. So, I mean, but that was a very rare case, and it wasn't over just, you know, ideas, right? It was about, this guy is like a crook. <laughs> so, I mean, um, that's how extraordinary that was. And so if, if the norm is, and, and essentially with traditional nominations, this had gone on for, you know, had never been impaired until the early 2000s when the Democrats, led by Schumer and Reed, started blocking appellate justices that uh, Chief Justice, um, I mean, uh, President Bush was putting on the on the Supreme Court. And the most famous one was Miguel Estrada, who uh, they wanted to put on the, uh, Bush wanted to put on the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And and it was later turned out through some leaked memos or something that somebody found that the reason they didn't want to put him on was that they didn't want the Hispanic on the Supreme Court who could then be elevated to chief, you know, to, to the, uh, I mean, to the Court of Appeals that could be elevated to the Supreme Court. I mean, it's just unbelievably cynical and disgusting, you know, reasons, right? But they, so they blocked them, and then there was this sort of a deal that was worked out, and, and but Ms. Estrada never made it onto the, the Court of Appeals. So then when we started blocking, when the Republicans started blocking some of their uh, Obama appointees, well, they just blew up the, um, uh, you know, the filibuster for district court judges and for the Court of Appeals, but not the Supreme Court, right? So that's where we are, right? There's just this sort of, you know, Harry Reid did that. So they blew it up, and it's just, and all this stuff is just total matter of convenience for them. There's no consistency in what, they, what they're doing. And um, so now they're kind of hoisted on their own petard because uh, they've got this great nominee. He's going to, you know, he's going to get a majority, um, and they're going to try and block it and, you know, expect the Republicans to be stupid enough to allow them to do this. I mean, even the Republicans aren't this stupid, right? <laughs> I mean, there may be one or two of them that are, you know, they're, you know, they're not exactly like, you know, bright bulbs, right? But I don't even think they're going to fall for this. So um, it's just not going to happen. And that was what McConnell was basically saying all along. Yeah, yeah. Starting at the beginning. And so, you know, it was another reason why this whole the Trump election was, you know, a miracle. And, and, you know, so you have this whole sort of set of processes. But starting with McConnell not allowing the seat to be filled, um, you know, it's... A long set of events, but it's a, it's a very big deal here. And let me just say one other point. What it also sort of means is that it's clear that if Republicans lose the Senate, right, and they have the presidency, the Democrats will not allow them to have a Supreme Court selection. Yeah. And I, I hope that sort of is coming yeah. through, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the upshot here, unless it's some kind of a, you know, a liberal that they can pick. Yeah. Right? Somebody who's pro-abortion, you know, all the sort of weird, you know, whatever their sort of checklist is, right? Yeah. So we're, we may be in a situation, I, I don't know if the Republicans have enough backbone to do this, but when, when you flip it over, well, they blocked everyone in reciprocity. Um, you know, they're, they're always some sort of, you know, kind of, 
Anyway, I don't want to go into that. But anyway, <laughs> if, if you got into a situation that you had a, a rural Republican Party with a spine, you know, then you would have a situation of true reciprocity, and, and you might end up not being able to get any judge, justices on the Supreme Court unless the party in power... You know, the president had the presidency. He was also controlling the Senate. So yeah. Well, we're out sense. of time, but uh, okay, point, point well made and uh, appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Chris Gasick, Senior Fellow at the Family Research Council. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that most women have an idea in their head that if they're perfectly balanced in their life, their life will be perfect. But how can that be possible when every day starts with whining and a bad attitude? That's even before the kids get up. Well, Lisa Pennington knows how to get up after losing her balance, even with a full house, a not so full bank account and never enough energy. In her book, Tight Ropes and Teeter Totters, Finding Balance in the Ups and Downs of Life, she offers readers strategies for finding balance in marriage, motherhood and bad moods, playful yet biblically based tips of, for turning hard days around, inspiration for shaping obstacles into opportunities and ways to respond to irritations with gratitude. For every woman who wants if her satisfaction in life will ever match her dreams, she has real-life answers full of hope and humor. Well, Lisa Pennington is a homeschooling mom of nine who shares her life one laundry load at a time on her blog, The Pennington Point. She is a sought-after speaker at conferences and women's groups and author of Mama Needs a Do-Over. Lisa and her family live near San Antonio, and she joins us today to talk about her book, Tight Ropes and Teeter-Totters, Finding Balance in the Ups and Downs of Life. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I tell you, I don't know how you find the time to uh, engage in conversation <laughs> with nine kids that you're homeschooling, but we're glad. Oh, I'm hiding in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> well, how has your faith and relationship with your family changed since you began living a more balanced life? Oh, well... The truth is, it's it's really about the journey of finding balance. I wouldn't say I'm living a more balanced life. I'm saying I'm, I would say I'm living a more peaceful life. Ah, yeah, that- I sort of blow the idea of perfect balance out of the water in my book, because you really can't ever get there. Yeah, yeah. You write in your introduction that you um, mostly thought that you would write romance novels because you tended to see see the world as one long love story. Now, as a grown-up woman with, yes, nine kids of my own, I see it absolutely is a love story. It's a love story between me and God or you and God. His love for us is so much better than the Harlequin, and the story needs to be told over Mm. and over. That's my passion. You write about your passion, and it isn't one of perfection somehow mastered over the course of time, but a love story lived out with God. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that was great. That was a perfect way to describe it. Um, I don't, I don't, I want to end the idea that we are going to have perfect balance, but that you can make improvements. And so that's what the book is about. Just uh, pick an area of your life that's not working and let's talk about some strategies to help it work better. But you never have full, I mean, the illusion on Pinterest is not really true. Nobody's really walking around with a perfectly balanced life. Yeah. Well, your first chapter is titled, Balance, What Is It? And you quote Proverbs 11.1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So what is it that we should be looking for? 
we should be looking for um, our own path and our own journey and not trying to imitate others or please others, uh, but to, to look for what, um, what God is looking for in us. And that really is when the best version of us is going to come out, and that's really when um, you're going to feel like you are doing, you know, walking the path that you're supposed to walk. Well, I love that in your chapter titled Balance, What Is It? You uh, offer a list of things of what balance is not, because oftentimes we mm. think if only things were balanced, I would reach perfection or uh, I would have complete control over all of my circumstances. But you make it very clear balance is not those things and several others as well. That's right. It's also not having control over everything around you. That's that's a not a fun way to live, especially for the people that are living in your house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. We, we're not going to try to control everything. We're going to try to get things right uh, in the way for our lives. And, you know, that might look different for me, but in some way than you. But I also talk a lot in the book about you know, things like debt, for example, or relationships that aren't working. Those are things that we can improve, if only in our actions and our own attitude. You write that balance is the result of an intentional reaction to an extreme situation. And also that balance is looking at areas in your life that are not working and finding measurable specific actions to change them. So we're talking about Mm -hmm. improvement so that we can experience the kind of peace that you referenced earlier. Exactly. Exactly. There are things in everybody's life that doesn't work. And um, everyone, I really try to say that over and over in the book. I tell funny stories on myself. I want you to see that it's, you know, (laughs) it's not always, you know, rainbows and puppies around here. (laughs) And so every, even day to day, you get out of balance. And so I I really wanted to make a, a fun read, but also have it hit you in a place where you might feel some hope that some of the things, problems that you're having, you can um, improve. How important is a sense of humor that uh, puts things into perspective and recognizes that, you know, this is just the nature of life? Exactly. It is. uh, God created humor and he is the author of that. I, uh, I will laugh at anything. I have stories on my blog where I, um, you know, my skirt fell down in the mall one time. (laughs) It just fell off. Uh, I was losing weight and I was not expecting it. And you know what? I have never laughed so hard. It was funny. You just have to like roll with it. And it might seem like a bad situation, but just enjoy your life. I think that's a huge part of finding balance is letting go of all the tension. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you're the mother of nine. I want to pause while people gasp. (laughs) (laughs) What's the best piece of advice that you have for a mom who needs help managing the ups and downs of parenting where you have control over so little. That's so true. Well, I have a whole chapter on motherhood in yes. the book. I try to break it down. So whatever your sort of target area is, you can kind of just flip to that. Because I know moms don't have a ton of time. Uh, or if you want to read back to your husband at night and, you know, <laughs> drive some points home. Uh, my best tip is relax. I get asked that a lot. And I try to say, just relax. Enjoy your kids. You know, I have um, of my nine kids, six of them are uh, over 18 now, and some are grown and gone and married, and um, I, I just want to say enjoy it. Relax and enjoy it. Mm. Yeah, because it will go by so quickly. <laughs> you'll you'll resent, regret Real that you quickly. didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, what's the hardest part about maintaining a well-balanced home, as we've described balance? Well, I think the hardest part is our attitude. Our own attitude. That's one of the things that I really, um, I really stress the most is so much of our problems are our own attitude. And so 
the hardest part is to step back and take a look at yourself and see it for what it is. Sometimes we're just having, we're just, what we're bringing to the situation is making it worse. So if you want to live a balanced slash peaceful life, uh, it starts with you. Well, many of us imagine that if only my circumstances were better, then I'd have a better mm-hmm. attitude. And yet the reverse <laughs> is so often the, the case. Oh, it's, well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it definitely helps when your circumstances change, but so often we, you know, we take ourselves with us in the next circumstance. And so uh, we have to work on ourselves. Yeah. But um, certainly we have some circumstances we could change. Yeah. And I do go into that. We're talking about tight ropes and teeter-totters. Many of us are trying to balance on them right now. Finding balance mm-hmm. in the ups and downs of life. We're talking with Lisa Pennington. She's a blogger and the author of the book. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Lisa Pennington. She's the author of Tight Ropes and Teeter-Totters, Finding Balance in the Ups and Downs of Life. And there are plenty of them. And if you're trying to walk through it with one of those balancing <laughs> bars, there, there's an easier and better way. <laughs> now, what advice do you give um, uh, to people, to women, especially when they're uh, trying to determine what friendships and relationships to restore, which ones to let go of in this effort to maintain a semblance of balance and peace. Oh, you know what's funny? As I've gone around speaking on this book, the friendship chapter is the one I'm getting the most questions about. So I think we've just hit a nerve that friendships are hard. Mm -hmm. And you're right. There are, um, I talk about ways to determine uh, where someone falls. And I kind of divide it up. Now, I I say don't tell your friends this, but you divide (laughs) it up between good friends and acquaintances and then people that are just, um, you're kind of in and out of your life. And you really have to know who those people are as you're in relationships with them. And sometimes they go back and forth. Uh, but um, you'll be, be, it's okay that some people are not supposed to be a permanent fixture in your life. So I think that helps a lot. Yeah, it's difficult to um, to acknowledge that, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes we feel an obligation when it's probably a relief on both sides when <laughs> you just yeah. agree. Oh, no, we <laughs> had had our season. I love you to pieces. Uh-huh. We'll we'll talk. Right. Someday. Still love you. Bye. Exactly. <laughs> now, where did the, the yeah. idea of finding peace in your life, this balanced plan, uh, come from for you as you have raised your and are raising uh, your children? Mm-hmm. Oh well, I would say it came from the Lord, but it just uh, experience. You know, walking through things and thinking, I don't want to be miserable. And sometimes things are really hard, and you feel like you can't change it. If you have a difficult marriage. Girl, that's hard to change. And so I would say uh, it can be done for sure, but it sometimes takes a long time. But you know what? You can be happy anyway. And I thought there's no reason why um, I can't be happy anyway in whatever circumstance I'm in. And I've just learned to do that, and I really want other women to, to have that blessing as well. Now, when our plan differs from the plan God has for us, that sometimes gives us a sense <laughs> of time. discontent. Um, how can we um, find that that content uh, in recognizing what God intended, uh, abandoning uh, to you know whatever degree is appropriate our own plans, and just mm-hmm. resting in uh, His sovereignty? Well, the number one way is through through His Word, and so I talk about in the book making yourself an arsenal of those verses. I call it my toolbox, and I have a list on my phone. It's super simple. 
when I see a verse that really ministers to me, I put it in there, and I can just go back when I'm having a moment, <laughs> which is often, and read <laughs> through some of those verses, and they instantly wash over me, and at least take the edge off where you can think through your responses and how you're acting, you know, so scripture for me is what does it. Well, that's such good advice. Sometimes we struggle to remember verses that we know we saw somewhere that would address this, but we don't have them at hand. Oh, my brain and... won't hold anything. <laughs> right. <You know. laughs> Write it down. Make sure God's word is accessible in those areas that we're really um, maybe struggling with or working on. Right, right, definitely, definitely. You mentioned mm-hmm. that even the negative feelings are a blessing, which might be puzzling uh, to to our listeners who are not yet readers, I hope we'll become readers. But how can we help mm. help ourselves learn that um, sometimes even those negative feelings uh, are teachable opportunities for us to to move forward? Well, I think that's the most obvious in our kids. You can see that in your kids when they're having a hard time, and you can see that this is a great learning opportunity for them. And you help them through whatever it is that they need to learn as they mature and grow. And the truth is, God is still doing that with me every day. He Something happens, I get down about it, and I can get down. I mean, just because I wrote a book doesn't mean I don't have a really hard day. And I get down about it, and I think this is the thing that I need to learn from. The happy stuff I don't learn from. It's the, it's the heart. And then I am, I'm a wiser woman for it. Well, and that's so oh, yeah. so challenging to remember for ourselves. It's easy to see it in others. It's easy to talk that's to true. kids about it, but to recognize that in ourselves is such a great reminder that God can redeem every circumstance, every event, every feeling, that he can use that for our good if we just recognize, okay, what am I to learn in the midst of this situation? Well, I think it is hard to remember, and I think that's why these books are great. Uh, my book um, there's lots of great books out there. You can pick one of those up. And I wanted you to feel like you have a girlfriend in me and we're just having a chat. And so, you know, sometimes you need that. You just pick it up and get your head, get, you know, get your head back in the game, so to speak. Because it is hard to remember. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of your chapters is titled Taming the Tongue, which sometimes oh, yeah. seems to run <laughs> wild <laughs> before we know it. We've said far too much. Talk a little bit about how we can Uh, manage the tongue in a way that maintains our peace and brings balance? Well, this takes so much practice. So, you know, as you're, the older you get, hopefully the better you get at it. But, um, you know, I've learned the hard way how much damage can be done by the things that I say that didn't need to be said. And you can feel it. As you begin to ask the Lord to show you, you can feel it coming out of your mouth. God saying, no, 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 no. (laughs) And you and then you just begin to slowly ask him to show you when to stop and then decide to set aside that little thrill that you're feeling from saying something you shouldn't and, and listen to the Holy Spirit. Eventually you practice it. It's just practice. Yeah, yeah. So much of what you write about in Tight Ropes and uh, Teeter Totters is a reflection of your walk with, uh, walk with God. Talk a little bit about your mm-hmm. relationship um, with him and how that has informed your thinking and uh, restored your your peace in the midst of circumstances that may or may not be quite what you anticipated. Oh, I could talk about my relationship with him all day. It is, like you said earlier in the hour, it is uh, a romance. And I know he loves me, and that is where I find my strength, because I can be a brat, and I do have problems, And but every day he just loves me anyway. He's the only one that Fully, fully, I, I can trust to do that. And so I have found so much peace and joy through that. I can always run to him, always. And um, he just forgives me. 
and he helps me and he teaches me and we move on. And how great is that? Yeah, it's wonderful. Now, my guess mm-hmm. is that some of the some of the women who are listening to us right now don't sense that love. They perhaps think, man, I'm, I'm unworthy. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've done X mm-hmm. and there's no way that God could overlook that and somehow love me through it. What do you say to her uh, when that love story for her seems like something remote that applies to other people, but not to me? I say to her, uh, just believe it. You have to take a, a one single step of faith and just believe it, that you are so beautiful and so valuable, and um, you have to just step out and say, okay, I'm going to believe this. And it's true. There's He loves you beyond what you've ever experienced. And if something in your life has stopped you from believing that, I didn't have a super loving childhood, but God got me through <laughs> where I, I now believe it. Just take that step of faith. Just, just do it. Just believe it, because you're worth it. Your last chapter is titled Making It Work. What's the goal in um, choosing to uh, live a more balanced life rather than um, that sort of uh, precarious uh, life of always trying to to perfect (laughs) whatever circumstance Mm -hmm. you're in? Mm -hmm. The goal is to learn what it takes to pull yourself back up again when it does get out of balance. The goal is not to have the balanced life, but when you start to fall over, what to grab onto God's Word, uh, wise, older, wiser women, your husband, whoever it is that you can trust, uh, to, you know, including the Lord, know what to grab onto when you start to fall. And don't get all upset that you started to fall. Don't be embarrassed that you had a problem. That's the goal. I want women to just know. And then, and it never gets, I have, you know, my 80 something year old grandmother never got it 100% right. It, it never gets right. It's really fine. Yeah, it absolutely is. Now, tell us how, for folks who are interested in your blog, where can they find you? They can find me at thepenningtonpoint.com. I just talk about life, and I try to keep it short and funny because I know moms don't have a lot of time. So I just want you to have a place where you can go, and we don't talk about politics, and we don't talk about uh, world events. <laughs> we just we just enjoy, I just enjoy uh, life, and I want to share that. So thepenningtonpoint.com. You can find me there or in my book. Again, the book is titled Tight Ropes and Teeter-Totters, Finding Balance in the Ups and Downs of Life. Lisa Pennington, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Now go sit down and put your feet up. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's going to happen. Bye-bye. The book is published by David C. Cook. You've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, multiple sources uh, say that Susan Rice, former national security advisor under the then-President Barack Obama, requested to unmask the names of Trump transition officials caught up in surveillance. Now, this could have been uh, just a matter of uh, inadvertent um, collection, or it could have been uh, more of a partisan uh, issue. We don't know the answer to that question yet, so people who are already assigning Susan Rice with Uh, being guilty. We're not entirely certain yet, but it does raise some interesting questions. Well, the unmasked names of people associated with Donald Trump were then sent to all those at the National Security Council, some of the Defense Department, then Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, and then CIA Director John Brennan, essentially the officials at the top, including former Rice Deputy Ben Rhodes. Well, the names were part of incidental electric, uh, electronic surveillance of candidate and president-elect Donald Trump and people close to him, including family members, for up to a year before he took office. 
Again, raises some interesting questions. Well, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer asked about the revelations on Monday uh, in the briefing, declined to comment specifically on what role Rice may have played or officials' motives. He says, I'm not going to comment on this any further until Congress uh, congressional committees have come to a conclusion, he said, while contrasting the media's lack of interest in these revelations with the intense coverage of suspected Trump-Russia links. Oh, when names of Americans are incidentally collected, they're supposed to be masked, meaning the name or names are redacted from reports, whether it's uh, international or domestic collection, unless it has an issue of, uh, of national security, crime, or their security is uh, threatened in any way. There are loopholes and ways to unmask through back channels, but Americans are supposed to be protected uh, from incidental collection. Um, but apparently in this case, they were not. Representative David Nunez uh, says that he has seen incidental surveillance reports uh, he fears were used for political purposes. Now, this comes in the wake of Evelyn Farkas' television interview last month on MSNBC, so it's surprising anybody saw it. But she said former Obama Deputy Secretary of Defense said, in part, I was urged by, uh, by my former colleagues and, frankly speaking, the people on the Hill. It was more actually aimed at telling the Hill people, get as much information as you can, get as much intelligence as you can before President Obama leaves office, uh, leaves the administration. Now, under certain circumstances, this could be considered a felony. Well, meanwhile, uh, it's also been uh, learned that the House Intelligence Committee chairman, Devin Nunez, uh, he knew about unmasking and leaking back in January, well before President Trump's tweet in March alleging wiretapping. Well, he has faced criticism from his uh, colleagues on the other side of the political aisle for viewing pertinent documents on White House grounds and announcing their contents to the press before uh, presenting that information to them. I don't know if it's just a simple breach of protocol or if this is an actual uh, offense under congressional rules, but sources said the intelligence agency slow rolled uh, the, the uh, chairman. He, he could have been, um, he could have seen rather the logs at other places besides the White House uh, security facility, but it had already been a few weeks. So he went to the White House because he could protect his sources and he could uh, get to the logs, end quote. As the Obama administration left office, it also approved new rules that gave the NSA much broader powers by relaxing the rules about sharing intercepted personal communications and the ability to share those with 16 other intelligence agencies. Now, some have speculated that that was specifically because President Obama was being followed by President Trump. Uh, Rice is no stranger to controversy. As the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., she appeared on several Sunday news shows to defend the administration's debunked claims of the 9-11-2012 attacks on a U.S. consulate in Libya, uh, saying it was triggered by an Internet video. Rice also told ABC News in 2014 that Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl served the United States with honor and distinction and that he wasn't simply a hostage. He was an American prisoner of war captured on the battlefield End quote. Well, Bergdahl is uh, currently facing court martial on charges of desertion and misbehavior before the enemy for allegedly walking off uh, post in Afghanistan. So as the many investigations, and I don't know about you, but I'm having a hard time keeping track of them all as they're moving forward. This is a new element that's been uh, added in. Again, uh, making information available on U.S. citizens um, uh, under certain circumstances uh, are is a felony. We don't know if that applies in this case, what her role was, why the information was collected for what purpose. Um, but that is now added to the other growing list of confusing investigations. Well, um, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee is poking around for more information on 
The spurious uh, dossier uh, leaked to the media ahead of the president's inauguration, this time homing in on Andrew McCabe, the second in command at the FBI. This is a separate element of the same uh, root investigation. In uh, late March, uh, letter Senator uh, Charles Grassley uh, wrote, uh, speaking to the FBI director, James Comey, said he wanted a detailed description of the involvement of the deputy director, McCabe, in the investigation of Russian ties to the Trump associates. Well, Grassley also wanted to know whether McCabe's involvement in the probe raises the appearance of a conflict of interest in light of his wife's ties to the Clinton associates and whether it would uh, merit McCabe recusing himself from the investigation. Well, Grassley was referring to McCabe's wife having accepted $700,000 in political contributions facilitated by Hillary Clinton ally Terry McAuliffe, the Virginia governor, for her state Senate run. As reported by the Washington Examiner, Grassley noted that McCabe already is being looked at by the inspector general for his involvement in the Clinton email investigation, despite his wife's ties. How much more convoluted could this all get? One wonders. Well, the Senate committee's probe began uh, on March the 6th. Given the latest letter, the panel appears to be looking to see whether McCabe faces similar conflict of interest concerns on the Trump matters. Grassley asked Comey for answers to 12 detailed questions on Uh, on Mr. McCabe, including whether anyone within the FBI filed a complaint with the Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General regarding Mr. McCabe's involvement in the investigation and whether anyone from the Department of Justice or the Inspector General uh, has raised concerns as to whether McCabe's alleged partisan conflict would also apply to the investigation of Mr. Trump's associates. Are you following this fairly uh, closely? No, I didn't think so. Just one other point. The Senate Judiciary Committee is more broadly investigating whether the FBI wrongly included political opposition research from Trump's opponents in its probe and then paid the author of that controversial dossier, a former British spy, to work for the FBI on its investigation. Well, McCabe has periodically faced scrutiny for his family ties to the Clinton world, and that uh, is a, a continuing part of the investigation. One wonders when the real work of Washington can get underway with members moving forward. And then there's this. Key Democrats blame Russian tampering in key swing states for costing Hillary Clinton the 2016 presidential election. But a new investigation found no evidence to back up that claim. The investigation is continuing, but as of now, there's no evidence. Numerous state officials and election uh, observers said there is nothing to back up claims from members of the Senate Intelligence Committee of a targeted misinformation campaign affecting the results. The charge came last week when the committee's brass painted a picture of Moscow manipulating voters with a vast army of operatives tailoring fake news to affect critical states. There was upwards of a thousand paid Internet trolls in Russia, in effect, taking over a series of computers. Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat out of Virginia, uh, Virginia, said they can then generate news down to specific areas in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. The charge got backing from Clint Watts, a former FBI agent, called to testify before the committee last week. It's a red herring. And Senator Warner knows better. That's a statement from uh, Morgan Wright, a former uh, law enforcement officer and cybersecurity advisor. Today, you can create the content, gain the audience, build the bots, uh, pick up the election and even the votes that are valued um, uh, the most in swing states and actually insert the right content in a deliberate period. Watts said Uh, they're pre-planned or they pre-planned it. They were based 
a year ago and a year and a half ago, rather. Well, uh, asked state election officials in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania whether there were any complaints filed after the 2016 presidential election reflecting these skewed Internet search or social media results. All three said there was no such irregularity reported. No one here received any complaints or reports uh, of apparently deliberate misinformation campaigns, the, P- the Pennsylvania Department of State spokesman said, not during the campaign or any time since. We've only heard of these allegations recently in the media. Well, election experts in the political science departments of universities in the three states in question could not back up the claim either. So whether or not there's any validity to that, I suppose only time and patience will tell. Fifteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after four o'clock. That would be five o'clock. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. 21 minutes after five o'clock. Five o'clock. Got it. Well, a bomb blast on a subway train in St. Petersburg, Russia, killed about 10 people today, wounded 43 others. Uh, One of the uh, blasts came from a device filled with shrapnel, so it was designed to uh, create as much damage as possible. An unexploded device turned up at a different subway station rigged with shrapnel, and a 2.2-pound explosive was found elsewhere. A security camera spotted a man that uh, who may have left the deadly bomb. They've narrowed it down to one. Originally, they were looking for two, um, uh, and they're, they're floating pictures of the individual. Uh, the news agency released that photo of a bearded man dressed in black, claiming he was uh, wanted in connection with the uh, blast. The explosive blew uh, at about 2.20 p.m. local time on a train between the Technology Institute station and uh, another square station uh, where the train was headed, Russia's National Anti-Terrorist Committee said. Photos and video from the station appeared to show wounded victims on a smoke-filled platform, some of the doors blown completely out. Nobody immediately claimed responsibility for the blast. Seven people died at the scene uh, from the explosion, while one person died on the way to the hospital, two others at the hospital. Um, trains and train stations were uh, common targets for terrorist attacks in Russia and throughout much of Europe. So this isn't the first uh, said event there. Double suicide bombings in Moscow subway on the 10th of or rather March 2010 killed 40 people, wounded more than 100. Chechen rebel leaders uh, took responsibility for that. There was a high speed uh, Moscow to St. Petersburg train that was bombed in 2009 in an attack. 26 were killed for that 100 injured then as well. And crews closed all subway stations in St. St. Petersburg uh, with this event, evacuating passengers. It just so happened that Vladimir Putin was in uh, his hometown at the time this took place, according uh, to local news. Russia's National Anti-Terrorism Committee vowed to tighten security at all of these transit stations as they seek to um, find answers to who was ultimately responsible for this disaster. The Treasury Department on Friday of last week slapped sanctions on 11 North Koreans and one company uh, over Pyongyang's nuclear weapons program in violations of the U.N. Security Council resolutions. This was a unilateral action on the part of the U.S. uh, with officials saying uh, North Korea cannot be allowed to continue on its present course. In fact, tomorrow, when I um, share the conversation I had earlier today with Joel Rosenberg, author of Without Warning, we're going to talk a little bit about the alliance between Um, North Korea and Iran, and you add uh, the threat of ISIS. And this is an unprecedented, in many ways, uh, threat. Nonetheless, uh, today's sanctions, uh, it was said by the Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen at the time they were released, are aimed at disrupting the networks and methods that the government of North Korea employs 
to fund its unlawful nuclear ballistic missile and proliferation programs. He said the sanctions underscore this administration's commitment to countering the threat to the United States, to our allies, and to stability on the Korean Peninsula and in the wider Asia-Pacific region posed by Kim's regime in Pyongyang. It was interesting that there was a report uh, that was released earlier today from one of the highest-ranking uh, refugees, if you will, from North Korea. And he made the point that Kim Jong-un is um, very anxious to use the weapons that and the, the, that he's been saber-rattling uh, about, although it's not in his interest for the United States to respond uh, to that kind of a serious attack, which would strip him and his family of the power they have enjoyed over uh, North Korea up to this point. But nonetheless, it was a rather sobering uh, interview, which you can find on the, online. Treasury Office of uh, Treasury's rather Office of Foreign Assets Control targeted North Korean nationals working as agents of the regime in Russia, in China, Vietnam and Cuba to provide financial support or procurement services for weapons of mass destruction in violation of U.N. resolutions. Now, under the sanctions, again, imposed by the U.S., any property or interests in uh, property of the designated persons will be blocked. Among those designated, the chief of a Chinese branch of the Tangun Trading Corporation, which was sanctioned in 2009 for its involvement in North Korea's weapons of mass destruction and missile programs. How effective that was, I'm not altogether clear. But also targeted was Han Jiangsu, a chief representative in Moscow of North Korea's primary foreign exchange bank. Uh, so we'll see how, uh, if at all, how effective these ultimately will be. Well, late in the Obama administration, the Department of Health and Human Services enacted a rule to stop states from funding Planned Parenthood. On Thursday afternoon last week, the Senate voted 51 to 50 to overturn that rule. The effort to reverse the president's or the former president's uh, rule was led by uh, led in the Senate by Senate uh, uh, Johnny uh, Ernst of Iowa and all of her fellow Republicans, except Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, uh, supported the measure. All Democrats opposed it, so Vice President Mike Pence cast a vote to break the 50-50 tie. To pass the measure, Republicans utilized the Congressional Review Act, which allows a simple majority in the Senate to repeal executive orders, rather than the typical 60 votes required to break a filibuster. Now, efforts to defund Planned Parenthood gained momentum in 2015 after the undercover videos revealed that the organization was involved in selling the body parts of aborted human beings to biotech companies. That year, the Senate utilized another process to bypass the filibuster, known as the budget reconciliation, to pass a bill for the first time ever redirecting Planned Parenthood's federal funding to community health centers. Well, the House reconciliation bill that was pulled from a, a vote last week also included provision to defund Planned Parenthood. But even if Congress can't come to an agreement on replacing Obamacare, there's no reason it can't use reconciliation to defund the uh, organization, the uh, largest provider of abortion in the country, this year, as pro-life groups are urging Congress to do. When Speaker of the House Paul Ryan was asked this week about using a government funding bill, which must be passed by April 28th, but can be filibustered by the Senate minority to defund Planned Parenthood, he said, we think reconciliation is the tool because that gets it into law. Reconciliation is the way to go. It's one thing to put an end to a, a um, an executive order, which has limited uh, capacity to prevent, in this case, the funding of Planned Parenthood. It's another thing uh, to prevent it from happening and putting that in law. Interestingly, Charlie Daniels, in uh, considering the, uh, the the number of abortions that Planned Parenthood is directly involved in, 
um, had his own idea combining a couple of issues that are making the front pages this uh, these days. One is his own idea of what sanctuary cities should look like. The outspoken uh, country legend proposed cities become a sanctuary for the unborn. How about some cities declaring themselves a sanctuary for the unborn and refuse to abide by the federal laws allowing abortion, he tweeted on Thursday. The 80-year-old tweet was a... Uh, uh, was a response to several large cities across the country's decision to shield illegal immigrants from deportation. The devil went down to Georgia. Singer has long uh, been vocal about his pro-life views. He wrote an essay about abortion on his website back in 2013. Yes, God knows us in every stage of our lives from conception to death, and only he has the right to decide when his creation leaves this life. Well, Daniels most recently wrote about the upcoming memoir on his website, accepting that soon what I have written will be available for all to read. I want to be totally truthful, honest, conveying the ups, downs and sideways of my life as cogently as possible, he wrote earlier or rather late uh, last month. Um, I want to write a clear and concise account of my life of a chubby, farsighted tar heel Uh, a kid who's been showered with God's blessings and protection and has lived a life he didn't even have the imagination to dream about when he first cut the apron strings and walked out into the world he knew very little about. So Charlie Daniels calling for sanctuary cities in which leaders in those respective cities would simply refuse to um, allow abortions within their boundaries for the safety and sanctuary of those in the womb. We'll see whether or not that takes off. 30 minutes after 5 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a vote uh, along party lines, the Senate Judiciary Committee today voted 11 to 9 to pass Neil Gorsuch, President uh, Trump's Supreme Court pick out of uh, committee for a full vote of the Senate. The Judiciary Committee Chairman, Chuck Grassley, said Gorsuch's uh, nomination will now move to the Senate. It will likely occur on Friday. Well, Senator Patrick Leahy said that he would oppose Gorsuch because the Supreme Court nominee failed to forecast how he would vote on issues that might come to the high court, which, of course, is what every Supreme Court, uh, would-be Supreme Court uh, uh, nominee says, uh, every single one of them. For those of us who hope that Judge Gorsuch would use his confirmation hearing to give insight into the type of justice he would be, we were certainly disappointed, Leahy said in a statement. Based on his record, I had concerns about his views and whether he would bring a partisan agenda to the bench. Judge Gorsuch did nothing to allay those fears. He, in fact, solidified them, which is really quite fascinating given, for example, the last two Supreme Court justices that were clearly um, liberal, had decisions that and had written on particular subjects, were confirmed by uh, the Republicans. So it's a bit disingenuous in this case. But nonetheless, he certainly has... Uh, the freedom to choose to vote for him or against him. I just wish he was a little more honest about it. Democrats are poised to filibuster Gorsuch and have secured 41 no votes, which will force the Republicans to use the nuclear option. If the Democrats do filibuster, Gorsuch would still be confirmed with 51 votes if Republicans choose to implement the so-called nuclear option or the two-speech rule, a Senate rule that mandates the Senate stay in the same legislative day until filibustering senators give up on their efforts. Rachel Bovard, Director of Policy Services at the 
Heritage Foundation and a former uh, Senate aide told the Daily Signal in an email that the nuclear option will likely be used to confirm Gorsuch. The Senate has two ways to overcome a filibuster, by utilizing the two-speech rule, which we explained here some weeks ago, uh, or invoking the nuclear option. Media reports suggest that Senate uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will use the latter following the um, uh, precedent set by former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid in 2013. So this isn't a singular, isolated act. It's the uh, culmination, I suppose, of a a years-long back and forth in the U.S. Senate on uh, such rules. In 2013, uh, Democrats used the nuclear option to abolish the filibuster on nominees, except for nominees to the Supreme Court. Republican lawmakers would not be breaking Senate rules, just violating them if they decide to use the nuclear option to confirm Gorsuch, according to Bovard. So violating and breaking, I'm not sure the distinction, but nonetheless, the nuclear option violates the Senate's standing rules, which requires 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. By setting a precedent for confirmation of Supreme Court nominees at a majority threshold. If the Senate actually wanted to change its standing rule, 67 votes uh, would be required. Well, if Republicans use either the nuclear or the two-speech rule to confirm the uh, uh, the judge, the 60-vote threshold to end debate would be waived, and just one vote with uh, 51 senators voting in the affirmative would be required. And they can reach that threshold with what we know today. Well, invoking the nuclear option or the two-speech rule on Gorsuch would be an historic ch- change in precedent for uh, Senate Uh, Supreme Court nominees in the Senate, uh, as neither have ever been invoked or used to confirm the nomination of uh, a Supreme Court justice. Well, if Democrats filibuster, uh, they will be conducting the first partisan filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee in American history, according to uh, the chief counsel at the Judicial Crisis Network, saying that Senate Democrats are launching the first partisan filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee in American history, denying an up or down vote for an exceptionally well-qualified mainstream judge who is bipartisan support of a majority of senators. Uh, they point, of course, to the absence of an up or down vote with the previous nominee under the previous administration. Well, Severino, in a statement provided to the Daily Signal, said that in the face of this unprecedented obstruction, Leader McConnell and his colleagues will have no choice but to invoke the constitutional option to preserve the the Senate's tradition of up or down votes. And again, that's sort of the heart of many of the Democrats' objection that the uh, the last Supreme Court nominee did not get the up or down vote, or for that matter, hearings. In late October, Senator Tim Kaine predicted that his party would change the Senate rules to conform to confirm a ninth Supreme Court justice if Democrats won control of the upper chamber in November. Gorsuch was appointed by President George W. Bush in 2006 to serve on the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. John Malcolm, the director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, um, told the Daily Signal in an email that Gorsuch is a qualified candidate for the high court, must receive an up or down vote, um, although the precedent was set on that as well. Throughout his career, he went on to say on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, Neil Gorsuch has demonstrated time and time again that he is a principled constitutionalist and a textualist who will apply the law equally to all citizens and will not attempt to rewrite the law to suit his personal or political beliefs. In fact, that's one of the things I think that has prevented support from some of the Democrats who don't want a constitutionalist or a textualist. They want someone who is willing to be influenced by uh, their views on a particular subject as long as those views uh, comport with a, uh, uh, the Democrats' agenda. Judge Gorsuch is an eminently qualified jurist, Malcolm said. He deserves an up or down vote and ought to be confirmed. Well, we'll see what actually happens uh, in the next couple of days. It looks like the um, filibuster will be uh, broken with the so-called nuclear rule or the 
the two-speech rule, and we'll uh, certainly follow that as it develops. Well, federal debt held by the public is set to hit 77% of gross domestic product by the end of the year, the highest level seen since shortly after World War II, according to the Congressional Budget Office's 2017 Long-Term Budget Outlook. Well, federal debt held by the public, defined as the amount that the federal government borrows from financial markets, has ballooned over the last decade. In 2007, the year the recession began, debt held by the public represented 35% of the gross domestic product, or GDP. Just five years later, federal debt uh, held by the public has doubled to 70% and is projected to continue rising. This is just in five years. The debt has not seen a surge this large since the increase in federal spending during World War II when debt exceeded 70% of GDP. The Budget Office projects that growing uh, budget deficits will cause the debt to increase sharply over the next three decades, hitting 150% of GDP by 2047. That is, unless there are changes made. Deficits are projected to rise over the next few years because government spending is outpacing tax revenue, causing a substantial imbalance in the federal budget. In 2017, 2017, the deficit was 2.9% of GDP. This is projected to rise to 9.8% in 2047. Well, spending for all of government programs and activities averaged about 18% of GDP over the past 50 years. In 2009, the last year of the recession, that number spiked to 23%, again, from 18 to 23%, and is projected to increase to 23.2% by 2047. The majority of the rise in spending is largely the result of programs like Social Security and Medicare, which Congress has failed to address, in addition to rising interest rates. For example, Social Security and major health care program spending represents 54 percent of all federal non-interest spending, an increase from the average of 37 percent. Um, as it has been over the last 50 years. And even though the government is collecting more taxes, uh, it's still not enough revenue to compensate for the increased growth in government spending. Over the last, uh, or the next 30 years, rather, individual income tax receipts are projected to increase by 2%, increasing from 8.6 to 10.6% of GDP. Corporate income taxes are set to decline by only 0.1% over the next 30 years, and payroll taxes are set to decline from 6 to 5.9% in 2047. Well, the Budget Office says that large and growing debt can pose risks for the United States and challenge policymakers. The increasing debt would constrain budget policy, reduce national saving, and increase the likelihood of a financial crisis. In addition to forecasting estimates about budget, the CBO calculates projections about economic growth. The Budget Office projects that the economy will slow down over the next 30 years to 1.9% compared to 2.9% growth seen over the past 50 years. This slowdown, according to the Budget Office, is due to a slower labor force, a decline in productivity, and increasing interest rates. Well, the agency projects that increasing increased borrowing by the federal government under current law generally would crowd out private investment in productive capital in the long term, the report says, and higher marginal tax rates on labor income also would reduce people's incentive to work, and the increase in the marginal tax rate on capital income would reduce their incentive to save. It's a formula for very slow and painful disaster um, and really points to the job that this and future uh, Congresses and administrations will have in addressing some of these very serious issues that has simply been kicked down the road like a can for the next uh, group of leaders to, to handle. But that time frame for doing so 
is uh, is shortening. And finally, three uh, liberal donor networks and foundations with ties to George Soros have joined forces to form a fund to resist President Donald Trump. The Emergent Fund, as it's called, carries a goal of fighting immediate threats to immigration, women, Muslims and Arab American communities, black people, LGBTQ communities and all people of color was estimated last year to quickly fund groups to talk, uh, to take direct action, immediate action against Republicans. And that sometimes translates into paying protesters. Well, since the fund's formation, it has received little public attention. It's raised over half a million dollars to give to groups opposing Republicans in general, not just Trump in particular, such as Black Lives Matter Network. The fund has extensive ties to significant networks and groups on the left. Uh, These communities needed increased capacity so that they can respond, act nimbly and develop new strategies in the uh, new period. The fund's website says the solid uh, this the Solidaire Network, the Threshold Foundation, and the Women Donors Network, all San Francisco-based groups mobilized to form the Emerald Fund uh, connected with George Soros, are engaged in funding the um, RESIST um, program that's been a part of the opposition to the Trump campaign from the very beginning. And we'll continue to follow their influence and tactics over the, uh, over the next, uh, well, four years, essentially. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. This is the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow we're going to talk with Joel Rosenberg, his book Without Warning. It's the, the uh, latest in the trilogy. Uh, that he's just completed. So looking forward to that conversation, which, by the way, I actually pre-recorded today because our live interview tomorrow had to be rescheduled. But anyway, that's coming up tomorrow on the program. Jonathan Morrow will be our guest on Wednesday. Welcome to College, a Christ Follower's Guide for the Journey. And Judy Bush and Joni Militich uh, will be with me from Prep for Kids on Thursday. So we're looking forward to that. Well, as you know, reaction to the vice president's story of uh, how he tries to honor his marriage has created quite a stir. And I appreciated what Jonah Goldberg had to say about it, first by pointing out a version of a story that's often repeated. And this version from Dr. Abraham Tversky, a renowned psychiatrist and Orthodox rabbi. And the story goes like this. The bearded Tversky, who's an Orthodox rabbi, goes to the airport in his Hasidic garb, the hat, the long coat, the buttoned white shirt, and so on. Another Jew, this one modernly dressed, is annoyed by Tversky and unloads on him. What's wrong with you? Must you insist on parading around in that medieval getup as if you were, uh, as if it were Purim? Don't you realize how ridiculous you look? You bring nothing but scorn and embarrassment upon the Jews. Well, after letting the angry man continue for a while, Tversky says, I fail to understand what the art saying. You do realize that I'm Amish, don't you? Well, the modern Jew's anger quickly turns to embarrassment. Oh, I beg your pardon, he says apologetically. I didn't realize that you were Amish. You look so much like a Hasidic fellow. You should know that I have nothing but respect for you and your people, keeping on, uh, keeping to your ways without borrowing and bowing to the, the society's will and whims. Well, the kicker comes when Tversky says, Aha, if I were Amish, you would have nothing but respect for me. But since I am a Jew, you are ashamed of me. Hopefully one day you will have the same respect for your Self that you have for others, end quote. But that's not the moral of the story that uh, Jonah Goldberg had in mind. He writes, the Washington Post ran a profile of Vice President Mike Pence's wife, uh, Karen, and lots of people were outraged or repulsed that two evangelical Christians do things that are fairly normal for evangelical Christians to do. One of the reasons I bring this up again, because I talked about it last week, is because I saw so many posts on Facebook uh, from Christians who are critical of the vice president for trying to honor his marriage and trying to avoid putting himself in a situation 
in which he might be uh, either misunderstood or compromised. The uh, Goldberg goes on. Specifically, Mike Pence apparently does dine alone, doesn't dine alone with women or attend events where alcohol is served if his wife doesn't accompany him. Perhaps this practice started when he was in Congress, a place where many a, a politician has ruined his marriage and career by not following such rules. In response, there's been a lot of cheap mockery from prominent liberal writers and activists. It's an affront to working women. He's a Christian weirdo. He thinks a meal with a woman, with any woman, will lead to sex. Well, a lot of conservatives have leapt to Pence's uh, defense, and rightly so. Molly Hemingway, whose rights for the Federalists concentrated on how these rules help prevent infidelity. Good uh, on Mike Pence for acknowledging these truths and knowing his limits. I agree, but it's worth pointing out that infidelity needn't be the issue. I doubt Pence would be a Lothario, save for these rules. Perhaps he followed them simply to reassure his wife, or maybe... This is uh, none of our business. That would certainly be the attitude of many liberals if Pence were a Democrat and had actually cheated on his wife. Last summer, when Bill Clinton spoke about his wife at the Democrats' convention in the spring of 1971, he said, I met a girl. Liberals gushed at the love story, and the rule of the day was that marriage is complicated and that Clinton's ability to stay married, though practically separated, was admirable. Besides, who are we to judge? No doubt Bill Clinton's favorite maxim. It's very strange place we found ourselves in when elites say we have no right to judge adultery, but we have every right to judge couples who take steps to avoid it. But ultimately, I don't think the important double standard is about marriage or adultery. It's about traditional Christians. If the Pences were Muslims and followed similar rules as devout Muslims indeed might, I doubt they'd be anything like this kind of liberal scorn. Of course, that's unknowable, but liberals spend a lot of time and energy defending accommodations for religious Muslims, burqas, veils, gender segregation, etc., that they would never make for committed Christians. Part of it is um, um, coalitional. For instance, the feminist march in Washington, the one with all those women wearing female, well, parts on their hats, was uh, co-chaired by Linda Sassauer, a committed Muslim who at times defends Sharia law, including the Saudi ban on female drivers, for instance. But part of it strikes me as a crude form of partisan bigotry, born of a kind of self-loathing of America's traditional culture. Orthodox Muslim views on women are exotically other and somehow courageous, like the uh, imagined Amish traveler. Orthodox Christians are embarrassing, like the Hasidic one. So the analogy does at least hold up when trying to make the contrast. Um, the uh, the attack, it seems to me, on the vice president made the media look a little bit silly. Uh, in fact, he does have lots of women on his staff. He works around and with them, but was making the point that in a situation where, uh, like many pastors would uh, suggest, they have an opportunity to be alone with a woman in a closed-door situation where they um, might be um, misunderstood or who knows, um, they they never meet with someone on their own. They might uh, have a secretary sit in. They might have a member of the staff uh, on hand. Uh, it's not that peculiar, and yet not only did the secular culture jump on the vice president as somehow a violation of uh, women and the law that he uh, declined to put himself in a position where he, again, might be misunderstood or uh, things might get out of hand, um, but many Christians did as well. It's possible to do your job and still hold high standards that you and your spouse have agreed upon, and we shouldn't be ridiculing the vice president for honoring his marriage as he does. Now, whether or not you decide to do the same, that's up to you. Um, but uh, to criticize the vice president, it seems to me, 
uh, to be uh, somewhat uh, silly and made the media look silly for jumping on it. Part of the problem is, in fact, the Patriot Post made the point that Vice President Mike Pence is a a man of deeply held Christian convictions, which makes him a target, unlike his um, uh, his colleague, Donald Trump. He's an easy target to criticize with his off the cuff and uh, hyperbole styled Twitter comments. The vice president, on the other hand, uh, proves to be a very different sort of challenge. He is both careful in his speech and actions. He's committed conservative with a distinguished scandal free record. He's a former U.S. congressman and governor. He knows Washington well from both the inside and the outside. And because of this, Pence arguably scares uh, those who would criticize him uh, more than Trump does. So what do they do? They attack him like a, a a uh, cornered animal that's desperate on uh, something that really has little to do with his uh, role as vice president. One went so far as to suggest that he was violating Title VII laws against sex discrimination. Uh, Grossman, who writes for um, Vox, uh, based her spurious uh, allegation on Pence's personal rule of not dining one-on-one with a woman who is not his wife. Stop the presses. Oh, humanity, san- sound the uh, scandal alarm. Or... Uh, admire him for taking his marriage seriously and always arranging to have a a circumstance in which he uh, honors his marriage, the commitment that he and his wife have made to one another, and still manages to do his job in all of the capacities I've already mentioned. So kudos to the vice president and shame on those who would criticize him for determining to do what's in his family and his wife's best interest and still maintain his role as a leader, not only as vice president, but former U.S. senator and governor. Well, I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and Justin Mansfield for engineering a portion of today's program as well. Uh, just about everybody here has had their hand in some way or another in today's program, so I'm grateful for that. Well, I hope you enjoy the sunshine. Those of you who are in the Vancouver area, I hope you enjoy your first day of spring break. And uh, those of you who are back for your first day of work, I hope it was a good one. And I uh, hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.